The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. Yet again, I have a beautiful view as I'm sitting here interviewing my next guest, uh, Lisa Sunin, who is Venture Valkyrie and also uh, during her day job, she leads Manat, Phelps, and Phillips digital and technology businesses, as well as the firm's venture capital fund. We are looking out over the Bay Bridge and out over the, uh, you know, I think we can see Alcatraz from here. It's gorgeous. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thank you for hosting me. Beautiful office. My pleasure. I love talking to people like you. You have this great history and you also are like-minded where you have a podcast, you've done a blog or you do a blog, you've written a book. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, But what's more fascinating is, you you know, according to your bio, you've grown up in the world of tech and healthcare venture capital. Let's talk a little bit about that journey. And I believe you started off in tech. You sort of have followed the health path and now you're doing all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I I did start off in tech. I started off working at a company called Regis McKenna, which was a pretty famous company in its time back in the 80s, uh, really one of the first marketing and PR firms focused on tech and Regis McKenna, the guy who started it and ran it, was a kind of legendary, was and is, he's still around, very much legendary guy in the the formation of Apple and a number of other companies. So I got my start there as an intern and when I was still in college and stayed in tech world for a few years. But I pretty quickly realized that I was not cut out for that tech at that time. This is all pre-internet, pretty dry stuff. and I got introduced to the founder of a healthcare company, and it was sort of like a why not? It really wasn't a design, um, but it was great. It turned into you know a terrific career. Well, it's a good space to be in these days. And yeah. Again, we'll talk more about that in a sec. So as I mentioned leading in, you lead um, the digital and technology businesses in the, the firm's venture capital fund. But for those that don't know, tell us a little bit about uh, Manat, Phelps, and Phillips sure. and you know, what they do. And then I'll have a follow-on question to that. Yeah, it's a great firm. And I'm, I'm sometimes surprised that more people don't know it. Um, it's a big uh, integrated professional services firm. So we've got a full-scale strategic consulting group here that focuses broadly on healthcare, on technology, on fintech, you know, lots of different areas, digital media and entertainment, and a full-scale law firm that does similar, you know, in similar industries. <laughs> and um, it's a particularly um, well-known, I think, both for the healthcare side and for the entertainment and digital side of what it does. Um, we also have a small venture fund, but very interesting and, and successful. And um, I've known the chairman of the firm really for probably 25 years. And so when I was um, exiting my last role, he asked if I'd come join over here. And it seemed like a great idea. Well, and I've heard of it before. But again, it's one of those things where sometimes unless you drill down into it, you don't really know what they do. So I guess as a follow on, and this will probably help answer a little bit more, is what does a day in life look like for you? You have a cool job title. (laughs) Um, It sounds like you sort of wear, you know, three different hats or at least two hats. Yeah. Um, you know, what are the things that you do in, in yeah. your day-to-day life? It is kind of a complex uh, job situation because I, on the one hand, I work very closely with Minat Health, um, spending a lot of time with them doing, uh, you know, work on the consulting side and business development. And I also lead the technology group, um, which includes emerging company work, venture capital work, innovation work, um, both consulting and legal and IP for security and privacy for, um uh, transactions, a bunch of other stuff. Very cool. And then I 
have the venture fund as well, which is relatively small. We don't lead deals, but it's very active. We look at a lot of deals and we're lucky that we get to see some pretty good stuff. Um, like for instance, we had been an investor in Lyft, um, uh, which, you know, as you may have heard, went public I, recently. I actually rode over in Lyft and <laughs> yes, they did. And they have a big healthcare offer yeah, now, yeah. as does, uh, exactly. um, Uber. So, so, um, that's what my day mostly looks like, you know, sprinkled around it is my other sort of side gigs. You know, I teach over at Berkeley and I'm actually going to teach this afternoon and uh, I write my blog and do my podcast and, you know, try to keep it all together. Well, that's awesome. And we will talk about the blog and the podcast in a second. Uh, prior to joining here, you also had a very interesting um, role. You're yeah. the senior managing director of GE Ventures, focusing on healthcare and healthcare IT. And one of the things that I found was fascinating is I was reading a little bit about you in Stat, uh, Stat News, and it said, by your own estimate, your group at GE Ventures read or heard roughly 1,500 pitches annually. That's a lot before whittling them down to four or five investments a year, making you one of Silicon Valley's top gatekeepers. And that was sort of the premise of the article. Right. So that's a nice title to own. Like, mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what that must have been like. And I think you still sort of sit in that same perch where people know that you want to get something done, you want to get money, um, you want to get some advice on sort of how to best steer your company. You're one of those kingmakers that people yeah. can come to. Queen makers. <laughs> well, you're making the king. You could be the king, king or the queen, but you make. Um, but yeah, I really um, thank you for that. It's very nice. I loved my job at GE Ventures. It was a great place to work. Um, probably one of the top, definitely one of the top corporate venture capital firms in the world. Um, and I had a phenomenal team over there and phenomenal colleagues. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I I've been in venture capital now for twenty years and. Really, I think on average every year see thousand to fifteen hundred business plans. It's amazing to me. Now, lots of them are not that exciting. You know, you don't read them all the way through. Well, clearly, if there's only four <laughs> or five, then a lot don't make the cut. But um, I'm amazed how many companies are generated every year by people and or and that you know survive to return. It's an incredible volume, and it's very. I think important if you're an investor to very, be very clear with yourself what you're looking for. Otherwise, you couldn't possibly process it all. It's just ridiculous. So I guess to that end, and I don't have this in our pre-script, but so you can punt on this one if you want to. I guess if you're going to give advice to someone that was thinking about starting a company, particularly in like the healthcare IT space, right. are there any resources or books or sort of things that they should read or podcasts. I mean, uh, other than reading, obviously, your blog and, you know, listening to your podcast, you know, any sort of words of wisdom that you give to them? Because it sounds like if you have that small a percentage, and I know some of them get funding elsewhere, but, you know, probably not a lot of them. I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe less than 5% of them actually get funding. A lot of them are doing things wrong. So how could they set off on a better course out of the gate? You know, it's, it's, an interesting question. For, I think most people probably come to venture too early. They need to bootstrap for a while or find ways to fund things that aren't professional venture. It's it's very onerous to have venture firms backing you uh, for lots of reasons. And I think if you're smart and scrappy, you can get a little further than a lot of people try to get. That's one thing. I'm not a big reader of business books and things like that, but I did write a blog not that long ago. I wrote about some of my favorite children's books and the business lessons that are in them. I'd go find that because I really think the stuff is pretty basic. Like know your customer, know the problem. Um, really think about big innovation, not incremental, tiny little things. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I see that what is effectively the same business over and over and over again, and their ability to differentiate is nothing. And yet, you know, 
they want money for that and it's tough because um, how do you know who's going to win? So I think it makes people make it harder on themselves, I think, sometimes. Um, you know, I do think it's um, important for for entrepreneurs to really understand who they're pitching to. A lot of times they pitch to the wrong people. They don't really understand what the investor is looking for. Sometimes investors don't make it easy to figure out, but usually they do. Um, and I think, you know... Um, preparing well and really understanding the financial levers of your business is critical even if you're an engineering founder even if you're a doctor founder no matter what you are you know really understanding the unit economics and the and the economics of the market you're in is really essential and a lot of people miss that well those are great lessons and as someone that's worked at two startups and we're at an agency now that's had sort of a scrappy startupy background and we presented to a group of uh, Chinese CEO master students yesterday and Jim Weiss, who's our CEO, specifically said, hold on to the reins as long as you can, meaning bootstrapping, be scrappy before you take outside money, because it does come with a whole host of good and bad, right? And and part of it is making mistakes is a lot less uh, acceptable when yeah. it's somebody else's money that's coming involved. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's actually I don't know. People, everybody makes mistakes in their job. Everybody, including the best CEOs, is, I think it's more about how you recover from it and what you learn from it and take ahead with you. I haven't seen a single company exit well that didn't have pretty weird experiences and near-death experiences along the way, frankly. So I'm not sure making mistakes is so ser so terrible. I think it's more about the transparency when they occur and how you respond. I like that a lot because actually looking back without getting into messy details of our own, uh, there were some mistakes made at past companies uh -huh. that we didn't recover from. And here there have been some mistakes we've made that we have. And so that has been a big deal. Yeah. And I totally agree with the transparency thing. You get yourself in far more trouble when you try to hide things or wait or fix them before you can present versus saying, yeah. here's what's going on. This is a problem. I could use your help or I just want to keep you in the loop as I'm <laughs> fixing this myself. I'm laughing because my dad, when I was a kid, he used to always say to us kids, it's always the cover up, never the crime that's going to get you in trouble. We tell our <laughs> kids that. It's the same thing. It's like lying is going to get you in a whole lot more trouble. You'll take yeah. a little bit of pain up front. You'll take a lot more pain down the For road sure. if you do that. Back to your blog. Yes. Um, and so it is the uh, venture... Um, Venture Valkyrie, right? Yes. And I do have to mention, because I had to look this up, I always loved the title, because I think I've known of you for several years. Valkyrie, and you've got this as your phone case. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll take a picture. Valkyrie was a Marvel Comics superhero, demigoddess, and member of the Defenders. She is known for superhuman strength and stamina, among other warrior traits. I sense that you probably embody a lot of those traits. But let's talk about the blog and what does the blog focus on? And I love the fact that you wrote the story or the the post about children's books and what does that mean? And so we will link to that in the sure. uh, the, in the blog post we incorporate. But tell us a little bit about that. And then you also have a podcast. So maybe talk about both of those Absolutely. and the focus and maybe what got you started down that path in the first place. Yeah. And the Valkyrie thing, by the way, the actual Valkyries, the original origin of that story is the Norse uh, mythology. And the, the Valkyries were the, the women goddesses that rode above the soldiers uh, and decided who would make it to heaven. And so I thought that was a pretty funny uh, metaphor for venture capital, even though it's, of course, rather snide and cynical. But, you know, what can I tell you? Um, I write about a lot of different things on the blog. I've been doing it now about 12 or 13 years, I guess. Um, but but usually they're things about healthcare and what's going on in the industry or investing or entrepreneurship and sometimes just things that strike me as funny. 
I really, uh, I'm like, I recently wrote about how Patagonia has stopped um, private labeling their vests for venture capitalists and other financial services organizations because it struck me as hilarious. Um, and, you know, I try to make it really um, entertaining as well as informative. Um, but for me, writing is a really fun, creative outlet, and this gave me a way to do it. Um, I, I enjoy it. I mean, I, it's amazing to me. I think there's 50,000 readers now. And um, the, it led to the podcast in many ways because David Shaywitz, my partner in the podcast, and I were sort of, sh- met, who, we met through Twitter, by the way, which is apparently a better dating site than other things. We aren't dating like that, but, you know, business dating. Business dating. Um, and we met and uh, really hit it off and uh, started the podcast together after writing a book together. Um, and the podcast is called Tectonics. It's on iTunes. And it's really about the intersection of technology and health. And we interview interesting people from all facets of healthcare that work at that intersection. Well, a little funny sidebar, and that is that I always love interviewing people that interview other people. And I actually did a podcast interview earlier this week week, if I remember correctly, with someone who said to me, I could tell you do interviews. So it is nice to have someone that knows the etiquette and can give the proper uh, answers. So um, I'll have to check out the, the podcast and we'll also link to that. Definitely. But We're speaking, about to do our 100th show, I think. Oh, that's awesome. I yeah. think I'm a little past that, like 110 maybe. But cool. um, speaking of David, you, you mentioned that you wrote a book with him called yeah. Tech Tonics, which yes. I love, right? T-E-C-H. Uh, T-O-N-I-C-S, so a little play on words there. And then the uh, subheadline was Compassionate Entrepreneurs Heal Healthcare with Technology, which I would argue I've not read the book yet, but is probably just as appropriate today, if not more so, um, as we're talking about like Dr. Eric Topol, who I interviewed recently, talking about AI and the role that it can play. But talk a little bit about the book, and I think you wrote this back in 2013, Yeah, yeah, that's 2013, yeah. I mean, it's it's a little dated, but, you know, yeah, it's relevant. The messages are relevant. I mean, it really was a collection of of stories that he and I wrote um, coming from different perspectives, you know, the patient perspective, the provider perspective, payer, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think, you know, if you fast forward to now, not a lot has changed, really, I mean, we have a lot more talk about technology in healthcare. We have some more utilization of it, but frankly, not as much as one would think. And um, I think there's still just such a tremendous gap in um, both empathy between the different parties for each other's position and such a misalignment of financial incentives among the different players in healthcare that we struggle to make great progress. Um, I yesterday uh, was in Chicago hosting or moderating, I guess, a debate, quote unquote debate between Steve Clasco, CEO of Jefferson Health, and uh, Sasha Jane, CEO of Caremore Health. And this was kind of the crux of the issue. It's like, how do you really move things forward until those issues are resolved? And um, not a lot of answers that are obvious because people, you know, one guy's revenue is another guy's expense. And so you cut expense. You, nobody's motivated to help with that. It's really tough. Well, and the other tricky thing is, uh, I remember I interviewed a guy named Florian Otto, who's the CEO of um, uh, Cedar, uh-huh. and they do. Uh, they, what they realized is that there's a gap in the payments processing, where you leave the hospital, your medical record gets or your medical bills get submitted to your payer provider, and basically they cover a certain percentage, and there's always a gap, right? And that amount very often doesn't get paid because people don't know, like, am I supposed to wait? You know, what happens? 
and I can't remember what the existing stat was, but it was a less than two hundred dollars, and people end up going into, um, you know, the naughty book, right? They, right. they get some uh, um, collections sent agencies. to the collections agency, uh, and that it's one of those things where, like, if you had a little bit more transparency, a little more guidance, then you'd fix these things. Where I'm going with this is. We were talking about how do you um, systemically fix healthcare, and one of the issues is it's hard to incentivize, you know, the payers, the insurance companies, to say, look, like, let's start talking about wellness. Let's do these things that sort of help move the needle, because we pick up and move as employees, right? So I'm at my current company right. for eight years, which is actually a long time. But when I move on to the next one, my unlike a 401k, my healthcare right. plan or insurance does not come with me. Whereas yeah. in Europe, it actually right. does, right? Right. right? And when you're on a longer term incentive and you have a relationship, then you can start to make different decisions than you'd be able to. So it's funny, uh, Sach and Jane talked about that yesterday about how the average uh, enrollment in Caremore is more like seven or eight years, where in the typical health plan, it's about two years. And so they do literally make a calculation, you know, of, of how long you're going to be there and, and how much the return on investment might be before they adopt new technologies and cover new things. And it's a rational business thing to do. I mean, unfortunately, right? We all wish it was uh, all about, um, you know, taking the best care of people. And I do think people sincerely do try, um, but it's a very challenging economic puzzle to fix you know and of course on the provider side they have the opposite incentive which is to do as much as they possibly can and charge for it right again i think people do generally try to do the right thing but it's you know financial incentives are very powerful well they are and especially when you're beholden to a higher power right exactly whether that's an investor or you know holding company or whatever or directors whatever yeah exactly um but it's good to see, you know, there are smart people like you and <laughs> Rasu Shrestha and others that, you know, are really pushing to try to help this industry. Um, we'd like to think we're doing our job in that regard, too. Along those lines, as someone that's had a close finger on the pulse of healthcare, in particular healthcare IT or digital health, you know, give us some predictions for the next five to 10 years. Like, And I know that's a big question, yeah. but you can take whatever path you want to take on that. What do you see coming <sighs> down the pike? Um well, I do think we're going to have a market correction in terms of pricing of these deals and things like that. I think the valuations have been unsustainable. Well, apparently they're sustainable because it's been going on for a while. But I just think long term, you can't keep having companies raise money at prices that are higher than anybody's ever exited any company like these things. Um, you, I mean, you can, but investors will lose money. So it's the you know it's a prescription for financial disaster. Um, and also for the entrepreneurs. I mean, they they're the ones in the end that really suffer because they don't get paid. In, in you know for their hard work so I do think we're going to see some correction and we'll shake out and a lot, we're starting already to see a lot of consolidation a lot of mergers you know a lot of not for quote-unquote not for profit mergers <laughs> of um, things coming together and I think that's right I mean I think the shakeout is necessary I think you know it's certainly not the first person to say that the production of both clinical and economic evidence of efficacy is more and more essential and companies that don't bother are not going to succeed. And I think companies vastly underestimate the importance of, of demonstrating economic ROI um, because of the reasons we talked about earlier. That's so important. So I think, you know, technology is here to stay like it is in every other industry, but the adoption curve is so long um, and a part of it is, is this, is that people don't take the time to really 
prove that they've solved a problem in a way that is measurable by the client. And I think we're going to get better at that. Well, that's great. That's very prescriptive. And I like that. Uh, I, I, I don't love the fact that that's what's happening, but I agree with you. I think it needs to happen. Uh, this is the point in the podcast where we do get into something that's a little more personal and a little <laughs> more fun. Um, and the questions where some people say these are the harder questions. Uh, the first one is tell us something about yourself that people don't know. That people don't know. Yep. And I ask all my guests or most of my guests these <laughs> same question. So um, I like to have a little bit of that logic. Well, since I've been like ridiculously, as my daughter puts it, embarrassingly transparent out there, the people know a lot about me, I think. Um, but they don't know. Um, well, some people probably don't know. If you look at my Twitter page, you'll see a four-leaf clover there. I am a prolific four-leaf clover finder. I find them all over the place, all over the world. Ever since I was a little kid, they just sort of jump out of the ground at me. So I've always been really kind of intrigued by four-leaf clovers. And uh, my daughter then was shockingly born on St. Patrick's Day, which I thought was maybe something related to that. I don't know. <laughs> maybe one of the cooler <laughs> fun facts that I've uh, ever heard. And uh, I guess, uh, is there a particular place in the world that you've seen? All over. I mean, I've been, literally so there's never been one place multiple where it's like, continents. There's just, more I around and there they are. <laughs> wow. You must have the eyes for it. I do. Either I have some or, in my wallet. You know, I'll show you even. Leprechaun in your, uh, in your blood. Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe a, my height. I'll get a picture of this as well. Um, while you're digging out the uh, the four leaf clover, um, books or podcasts, other than obviously you've written a book and you yeah. do a podcast, any that you have read or that you would like to share uh, for our listeners' benefits? Um, ironically, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I do like to read. I mostly read nonfiction, um, non but nonfiction good stories. I'm distracting Lisa as we're doing this by taking <laughs> pictures of her four leaf clovers and her phone. Uh, my favorite, you know, my favorite book I think is called Shadow Divers and it's by Robert Curson. He's also written some other amazing books. He's an incredible author. Um, but he takes these great nonfiction experiences that are sort of random. This one's about a um, bunch of guys that went scuba diving to find a, um, a World War II German U-2 boat off the coast of New Jersey which is real, it was there, <laughs> and uh, tell the history of that story and the people who were on the boat. Fascinating. And it's just so fascinating because it talks about like equipment they had to invent to, to make the dive and sort of the, the empathy they felt for the people who were on the ship and how they went to Germany and really learned about the families. It's a really fascinating book. He wrote another one. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the name, but it was about a blind entrepreneur who real story again in Silicon Valley who you know finds a surgeon who can fix his sight and the experience of that and what how that changes his life for the good and for the bad really interesting books so those are my favorites I think I liked I just like great stories you know and I aspire to tell them so I think that's why I like them well, I love when people select things like that. It doesn't I should make sure people are clear that it doesn't have to necessarily be a yeah. business book and it's really what made you think or what inspired yeah, you. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think that probably speaks a little bit to who you are as a person and how you think. And I love stuff like that where it's, you know, kind of that it hasn't been solved yet. So how yeah, do you stranger than it? fiction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so getting to the last question, which is a little bit related to U-boats and whatever, but uh, it's the proverbial you're stranded on a deserted island. <laughs> you can only bring one album with you. Which album would you bring and why? Well, I agonized over this one, really. I have to tell you because... You know, I could say something really erudite and, you know, um, and then I thought, well, probably Bob Marley's Legend album might be my favorite in terms of the number of times I've listened to one. But in the end, I came down to 
Dennis Leary's No Cure for Cancer comedy album because it's hilarious. And to me, humor is just the most important thing. And I've listened to that album, I don't know, a hundred (laughs) times driving around or whatever over the years. It's pretty old. And it cracks me up every time. So I think that's the one I'd have to take. Well, I love that. And I think out of 110-ish podcasts, you're the first person to choose a comedy album. (laughs) Not shocking, given who you are, that you would do that. And uh, I actually love that album as well. I also love Bob Marley Legend. And I've listened to that 8 million times, starting when I was at UMass Amherst uh, a million years ago. So anyway, this has been a pleasure. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What to Know podcast. I've just spent the last 20-ish minutes speaking to Lisa Sunan who is uh, Venture Valkyrie. She is the group leader at Manat Phelps and Phillips, overseeing the digital and technology businesses, as well as the firm's venture capital fund. She is also a podcaster. We heard about that, Tectonics, uh, found on iTunes. She's written a book um, and a generally fun person. So thank you, thank you for spending great. time with us. It was great us. to do this. Thank you so much. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.